Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Karaism, an introduction to the oldest surviving alternative Judaism, published by the Littman Library of Jewish Civilization in 2022, Daniel Lasker presents, for the first time, a comprehensive overview of the entire story of Karaite Judaism. Uh, this book was a National Jewish Book Awards finalist, and the author, Daniel Lasker, is Norbert Blechner, Professor of Jewish Values Emeritus at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, and he is a visiting professor this semester at Yale University. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you very much. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Well, I guess I'll start at the university. I went to Brandeis University. I did all my uh, three degrees there. And my teacher and dissertation director was Professor Alexander Altman of Blessed Memory. And Professor Altman had a very wide-ranging view of Judaism and Jewish texts. And it was in a course with him my first year at the university that in a course on classical biblical commentators, the commentaries on the Bible, one finds the traditional, uh, what are called the rabbinic Bibles, he, uh, Professor Altman, sent us to additional texts, which are not part of that corpus, let's say, one of which was Keter Torah of Aaron ben Aijah of Nicomodea, a 14th century Karaite. And I also was interested in other aspects of Karaism. I thought that sometimes heterodoxy is more interesting than orthodoxy. Karaites are, in, are mentioned uh, quite often. Over the years, I became more and more interested in Karaism, and Karaite studies got a major boost with the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, as a result of the activity of a 19th century Karaite entrepreneur, bibliophile, collector, somewhat of a forger, uh, very interesting uh, individual, Abraham Firkovich, his collections of Karaite works and other Jewish works ended up in the the uh, Royal Library or the National Library now in St. Petersburg. And during the Soviet Union, when St. Petersburg was Leningrad, those collections were more or less closed to Western scholars, even their own scholars. They weren't anxious for them to go into the the collections. So through the years, Karite studies have had a major boost. Uh, There are more and more people interested in it. There are there's much. There's more and more interest in Judeo-Arabic, which is the language in which classical many classical Karite texts were written, namely Arabic in Hebrew script, with certain syntactical uh, borrowings from Hebrew and many vocabulary, much Hebrew vocabulary. Anyway, so over the years, Karite studies have become more and more widespread, not uh, to the extent that other areas of Jewish studies, but certainly more than they were when I started uh, over 50 years ago. And I realized that 
there was no book, which is really an introduction to the whole field. And I would tell people that I had, that I was interested in charism. I wrote about charism. The first question they ask is, are there still charites? To which the answer is yes, there's still charite communities, mostly in the land of Israel, the state of Israel, uh, also in the United States and in Eastern Europe. And the other question is, where can I read more about it? And there's really nothing I could uh, suggest. There are no books that covered, from my point of view, everything or almost everything, both history, origins, the intellectual uh, accomplishments, the beliefs of charism, what Karaites have contributed to Judaism as a whole. Uh, and over the years, I've been thinking of writing such a book. Uh, people often ask me to, if I was writing such a book. But uh, two and a half years ago, or almost three years ago now, the coronavirus hit the world. Many of us were under what was close to house arrest, couldn't travel, couldn't do very much else. I said, okay, now's the time. So I sat down in my study in my house, which has a large Karaite collection at my computer, and I wrote this book from scratch. There's a lot of pleasure trying to put everything together and putting uh, everything that I had done or learned in over 50 years. And I was very happy that the Lippmann Library uh, agreed to publish it because they're a very good publisher, very nice people to work with. And I think the book turned out very nicely and has had some very good reviews in addition to the being a finalist for the book prize. Right. Uh, talk about turning a, a terrible uh, situation, the global uh, COVID uh, pandemic, into something positive, a <laughs> uh, new uh, uh, book about this important topic. Uh, that's really great. So you know that uh, and you in the book, and you just uh, uh, mentioned that his, for, for a long time, uh, Karaite uh, uh, studies have been ignored by historians of Judaism. But, but uh, why is that? Why have historically um, you know, scholars of Jewish history not focused on the Karaite uh, community? Well, I think that the many historians of Judaism were more interested in what they considered mainstream or mainline Judaism, normative Judaism. Uh, in fact, even to this day, you'll see much discussion of, let's say, normative Judaism, the Second Temple period, whereas there are many different Jewish groups of which the Pharisees survived, but didn't make them the one normative group. But that's sort of the traditional rabbinic historiography. I would add that reading materials is not easy. Start out with the fact that in classical, the the golden age of charism in the land of Israel from the late 9th to the 11th centuries, most of the literature was written in Arabic. Add to that that the first Hebrew Karite works were written or translated from the Arabic in the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople into a Hebrew, which was very, very hard to read. Accessibility of the manuscripts and the text was not high. And since most, until recently, most Jewish historians have been Eurocentric and have thought mostly in terms of Europe and not in terms of the Middle East. And during this period, during the, the Eastern European uh, era of Karite life from the 15th century until, until the present, the Karites were a very, very small um, 
marginal group. In the 20th century, the Karaites in Eastern Europe claimed that they were not Jewish at all, not that they were another type of Judaism, but they are racially not Jewish. And you have to understand the early 20th century, anti-Semitism stopped being a religious anti-Semitism, which one could avoid by converting to another religion, but became racial anti-Semitism, which could be avoided only by not, by not being Jewish racially. So the Karaites in the early 20th century announced that they were a Turkish um, or Turkic uh, uh, tribal group from Central Asia. They had nothing to do with Judaism. So if you see that the most or many of the Karaites of the world were denying their Jewish identity, and the Karaites in Islamic countries, like especially Egypt, even though they are very closely attached to the Jewish community, but the Egyptian community was not something which most Jewish historians looked at, and the Judeo-Arabic period of Jewish history was one which required special linguistic skills, and not many Karite, uh, not many Karite books had been published, and when they were published, they were in editions which weren't very good. It was certainly a lot easier for people who were interested in Jewish studies and Jewish history and Jewish literature, Jewish culture, to look at those topics which were discussed more and which had uh, more accessible sources. So I think that's all part of it. I'm hoping that as a result of the now accessibility of the former Soviet Union. And recently there is a Karite anthology in Hebrew of works from the Karite Golden Age, which was published in Israel. And I hope my book, I think this will give a little bit of impetus for interest in charism. That instead, I still get the question of Karites Jews or Karites, or they'll talk about Karites and Jews rather than Rabbinite Jews and Karite Jews. I even got a question the other day, the relationship between Karaites and gypsies. I couldn't understand what that was uh, about. Uh, yeah, although it's interesting, they you know they say that uh, you know people's questions you know tell a lot about about them, the, the questioner and their you know frame of reference or whatever. I think it's very telling if someone says, "What's the relationship between Karaites and gypsies?" It it, it it seems to indicate that in the questioner's mind, Karaites are, are people that are somehow on the margins of, you know, Western society, Western civilization, like gypsies or Roma people, and, you know, somehow uh, mercurial and maybe uh, 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 exotic in some way, but not sort of uh, central to uh, 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 Western civilization. I think that uh, a more knowledgeable question, which is also wrong, was that when people ask me the relationship between Karaites and Samaritans, because people are aware of the fact there is a semi-quasi-Jewish group called Samaritans, people who use the or rely on the first five books of Moses and the book of Joshua, not the rest of the Bible, a group which over the years, at least in rabbinic periods, was seen as somehow within the Jewish uh, uh, orbit or uh, realm, but from Jewish, from the, at least from the Jewish history part of history, the, the Samaritans aren't Jewish. They were people that were brought 
into the northern land of Israel after the destruction of that kingdom in 722 before the common era and who adopted Judaism because that was like the local religion and they felt they had to propitiate the local God. So the Samaritans are a much different story than the Karaites. The Karaites developed from the Jewish people, totally inside the Jewish people. Uh, they claim to have roots that go way back into Jewish history, but as identifiably as a separate group, we can, we can put them in the ninth century. They accept the whole Bible, the same Bible, exactly the same Bible as Rabbinite Jews accept. That's the, the Masoretic text developed in the ninth, eighth, ninth, tenth centuries in Tiberias in the land of Israel. And in fact, there's some people who think that the Masoretes, the people who uh, standardized the text of the Bible, were themselves Karaites because they were experts in Mikra, namely scripture. And Karaites, it's usually thought that Karaites means people who are experts in scripture from the word Mikra. All right. So speaking of which, could you say a little bit more about when uh, Karaism uh, actually developed? Well, in the 8th century, there was a fellow who apparently separated himself from rabbinic Judaism. He was in Iraq, which was the center of rabbinic Judaism, the center of the yeshivot, the academies. And his name was Anan ben David, who came up with a different interpretation of the Bible and whose followers were known as Ananites. Eventually, the Ananites seemed to have amalgamated into the group called the Karaites, and the Karaites then claimed this Anan as one of their own, and the rabbis, the rabbinites also, saw him as uh, the leader or the founder of Karaism. So you'll read in a lot of books, not in my book, but you read in a lot of Jewish histories, that the founder of Karaism was Anan in the 8th century, which is, as I said, uh, not exactly true, even though on later Karaites looked back to his teachings, even, uh, even though there are many different uh, differences between Ananism and Karaism. Our first people who used the term Karait, Karayin in Arabic, or Balei Mikra, uh, experts in scripture, were in the ninth century. And it seems that the center of Karaism and the development was in Persia, today's Iran. This may have to do with the fact that these were communities which were far away, in those terms, those days, from the Iraqi Babylonian center in Baghdad. And it's also possible that they were just re uh, reinvigorating their own older traditions. We think that the, uh, we, namely, people who are grown up in rabbinic uh, historiography see the Judaism of the Talmud as something which was always acceptable to all Jews or almost all Jews, that there was a hegemony, as it were, of the rabbis of the Talmud and then the, uh, the Gaonim in, in Babylonia, in Iraq, that almost all Jews followed their form of Judaism. But I think we know more and more, the scholars are pointing out, the extent to which the rabbis had to struggle to spread their form of Judaism, struggle to uh, bring the Talmud to the rest of the Jewish world. And it's very possible that when 
the representatives of the Ga'onim, of the heads of the academies in Baghdad, uh, came to these communities with the Talmud or with different uh, observances and customs, uh, the people who were used to doing things differently said, we don't like it like that. We're a different group. We don't do it like that. We don't have to listen to what you have to say. Uh, you might add into it a certain amount of uh, politics that the Baghdad at the time was, ahead, uh, was the center of the Abbasid Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate had overthrown the Umayyad Caliphate in, in Damascus. And so at that time, the Abbasids were trying to spread their influence in the Islamic world. And the Jews of the Abbasid Caliphate, the Ga'onim, the academies in Iraq and Baghdad, were also trying to spread their influence. And it's possible some of the local Jewish community said, well, we don't do it like that. We have a different way of doing it. And we have evidence of other non-rabbinic groups from the same period or somewhat earlier period. And it's possible that these groups coalesced into what turned out to be charism. So this is the ninth century. By the end of the ninth century, there is a Karite community in the land of Israel. Many of them, if not all of them, were mourners of Zion, which is a group of people who thought that because the temple was destroyed, it was necessary to adopt uh, various forms of mourning, lamenting for the temple, such as not eating meat or drinking wine, having dressed in sackcloths, very poor houses. And these people also adopted a regimen of fasting and saying lamentations. And the whole purpose was to, in a sense, I won't say force God's hand, but they thought that this was a way for God to encourage God, if it were, um, to send the Messiah. And many if, of Karaites were mourners of Zion. There might have been mourners of Zion who weren't Karaites, who were Rabbinites, but the dominant group were these Karaites. So this began in the end of the 9th century and was especially strong in the 10th century. And it's during this period that one of the Gaonim, I mean, the Gaonim are the heads of the academies, named Sajagon, the most prominent one, uh, polemicized at length against Karaites and other non-rabbinic groups. And it's very possible that as a result of his polemics against them, they were united. They decided had to, they had to uh, come up with a united front uh, a contemporary of Sa'ajas in, in Baghdad, a Karite named uh, Yusuf al-Kirkasani, um, uh, Yaqub, I'm sorry, Abu Yusuf Yaqub, Yaqub al-Kirkasani, wrote in the time of Sa'aja that no, no two Karites agreed about anything, and the situation got worse from day to day, which is often used as a proof of their Jewishness. So, <laughs> All right, it's, yeah, go in, ahead. Any event, in any event, <laughs> by the end of the 10th century, charism was more or less standardized. And we have the classical charism, which was then ready to be going to exile, as it were, to the Byzantine Empire. And, the, and more or less the charism that we know to this day, the traditional charism. Over the years, there's been rapprochement with the rabbinite community. 
There have been changes in Karaite practice. There have been changes in Karaite outlook. Uh, but charism by the end of the 10th century was what we know of charism from today. Right. And just a point of, of clarification, when you say rabbinism, you're referring to what we think of as the dominant stream within Judaism from after the, the Second Temple uh, in, in, in Jerusalem. Correct. This is the follows of rabbinic Judaism. The, the rabbis, if you'd say with a, with a capital R, are those people who composed the Mishnah in the year around the year 200, Rabbi Judah the, priest, the prince, and then the Talmud, end of the 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, many debates as to when exactly the Talmud was completed. As I said, you, you said that this was the dominant Judaism. That's the way they presented it. And the non-rabbinic group over the years seemed to have disappeared and therefore, there wasn't anybody to uh, contest this. Even the Karaites, who claim, as I said, antiquity, and said that they they go back to Sinai, and there's a separate group. You can see them in the Second Temple when Rabbinic Judaism was invented. Even they agree that they were always a minority ever since the found from their point of view, the founding of Rabbinic Judaism. They have been a small minority. They have an explanation. I won't go into. It. You can read in the book, uh, but. Uh, they, the dominant part of Judaism to this day is rabbinic Judaism. And the followers of that in the context of charism are called rabbinites or rabbinism. And when I say that the, to this day, rabbinic Judaism is dominant, there are people who would say, oh, but most Jews today are secular. Most Jews today are reform or conservative or don't have any identification, affiliation. And the answer is, no, even the most secular Jews, if they do something Jewish, they do it in the rabbinic rabbinite mode so that almost all Jews have a Passover Seder. The Passover Seder they do, no matter what language and how much they cut things out, is done according to the rabbinic way of doing things. Uh, one of the most popular uh, rituals observed by Jews, both in Israel and in, and in America, is Hanukkah. Lighting the Hanukkah candles. Well, the Karaites say Hanukkah is not a biblical holiday, and therefore it's not a holiday, and therefore it's not to be observed. I'm sure there are many Karaites who themselves do observe Hanukkah in some way because it's a Jewish holiday, especially in Israel, which is a, it's a national holiday. It's not necessarily a religious holiday. Uh, but as I said, even the most secular Jews, when they do anything that has to do with Judaism, they do it according to the rabbinic mode. So that, for instance, the rabbinic calendar... The holidays are in the days, they, they'll celebrate the holidays in the days the, the rabbinic calendar says to observe them. Right, right. So, for again, for listeners who are just not really familiar with Jewish history, but they might know that there are Jewish denominations today, like Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, Orthodox, and so on. All of those denominations are branches within what, what you're referring to as rabbinic Judaism, and that the Karaites are a group or set of groups of of Jews who are outside of that uh, 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 stream of Judaism. Correct. So, for instance, if you walk into a a, a rabbinic Jude, a, a synagogue, where again being Orthodox, conservative, reform, there might be question of the separate seating of men and women, where exactly one places the altar, the bima, but there's a there's a holy ark in front of it. And people use the, the Sefer Torah that's uh, 
there. All the, the groups do. I mean, the, the, scroll, used... the scroll of the Torah. Oh, also the scroll of the Torah. Yes, thank you. Um, and the prayer book they use are are identifiable. Even if you open a Reformed prayer book, it's based ultimately on the traditional rabbinic prayer book. You walk into a Karite synagogue, it has an ark in the front, but there are no chairs because people practice full prostration. They, uh, they, Karites take off their shoes before they go into the synagogue. The prayer service is totally different than the rabbinic one. It's not an abridgment. It's not, an, it's not uh, similar, but it's mostly made from biblical uh, portions, mostly from Psalms. And there are times in the, during the service where they stand, times in the service which they sit on the floor, and times in the service when they prostrate fully. So it doesn't look like a, a Jewish synagogue or a rabbinic synagogue, which a non-Orthodox synagogue would like would look like that. And just in case anybody wants to visit a Karite synagogue and doesn't want to sit on the floor, they have in the back of the synagogue something which they call the Moshev Zakanim, the the old which is used in the modern Hebrew to mean the an old age home, uh, but it means that where this old people sit. So if you can't manage the floor and bowing, you can sit on the chair and they'll let you do that, but only in the back. Otherwise, it's a carpeted floor. It looks, uh, people think, I've accused the Karaites of being a type of Islam because it looks like, in a sense, like a, a mosque. Uh, but the Karaites say uh, correctly that in the times of the temple, there was bowing and fr- prostration. In the times of the temple, Jews took their shoes off before going to the holy, t- holy property, holy territory. And therefore, there's not Muslim customs that they've adopted, but ancient Jewish customs, which they preserved. Right. And I'm curious, were there exchanges between uh, uh, Karaites and members of rabbinic Judaism in the Byzantine Empire? Oh, there they certainly were connections. Uh, A number of the prominent Karaites were students of of the rabbis. Some rabbis said... uh, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't take in Karite as, as students. Others said yes, they should. Uh, the Karite works, which were written in the Byzantine Empire, show the great impact of rabbinic literature. And there are even uh, I talked about rapprochement and, and and changes in charism over the years. In the 15th century, especially, there are two major changes in charism. The first one is that traditionally Karites would not light Sabbath candles before the Sabbath. So in rabbinic Judaism, on Friday afternoon, there's not only a permission, but a commandment to light candles so there'll be illumination in the house. And one can also use um, fire for various purposes, not make fire, but for instance, uh, the Shabbat, the Sabbath uh, delicacy for lunch called the cholens, the uh, slow cooking stew, uh, was using uh, heat, and one it could use fire, and one could also heat one's houses on the Sabbath. The Karaites sat in the dark and in the cold. Now, originally, Karaites said that if one came upon a fire on the Sabbath, one should put it out. Then the Karaites said, you know what? Don't light the candles before the Sabbath, but if they're lit, don't ex- extinguish them. And then in the 15th century, the Karaites finally said, you know what? We don't have to sit in the dark all of Shabbat and the, all of Sabbath. 
and they adopted lighting candles, not with a blessing as the rabbinites do, and not for use of heating the homes or for making this special uh, Sabbath stew. In fact, it's interesting that late 15th century, after the Karaites in Byzantium had allowed the use of candles, illumination, um, they got a letter from the Karaites of Trochi, Lithuania. And the Karaites there wanted to know if it would be permissible to keep their homes warmed by use of fire. In other words, presumably, I guess, having non-Jews come and stoke the fire or replenish it. And because Lithuania gets cold in the winter (laughs) and they got a response from the Karaites in Byzantium. No, you can use it for lights, use fire for lights, but cannot use it for heating. After all, how cold could it get in 24 hours over the Sabbath? After this question was asked in the late 15th century, we don't have any evidence that it was asked again, and presumably uh, they didn't take the advice that they uh, decided that they needed to keep the houses warm in Lithuania. So that was one reform in the 15th century. The other one was reform in the Torah reading. The yearly cycle of reading of the Pentateuch, five books of Moses, Originally, the land of Israel was done from Passover to Passover. That's the spring into the spring, uh, oftentimes over three years, whereas the Babylonian uh, Rabbinite Jews read it in one year from the end of the holiday of tabernacles uh, and renewing it every year at that time. So the Karaites and the Rabbinites in Byzantium in the 15th century had different schedules for reading the Torah. And the Karaites then adopted the Rabbinite schedule. So there's another way of getting closer to the Rabbinites. So there's a lot of influence in the Byzantine Karaite community from the local Rabbinites and also from uh, exiles from Spain or immigrants from Spain who brought with them the literature of the Rabbinite community of Spain. On the other hand, I should add that there were many many Rabbinite Jews who were influenced by Karaites from one way or another. Uh, one of the best examples is Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra in the 12th century. He was a commentator on the Bible. His commentaries are full of Karite material. Sometimes he adopts Karite interpretations without giving them credit. Oftentimes he uh, disagrees with them and says specifically uh, disagreeing with their view. But he's certainly in, um, he's engaged with the Karites. He's in conversation with the Karites. And it's from his commentaries that we know a lot more about Karaite interpretations. In fact, in the 12th century, almost every prominent Rabbinite Jew in the Iberian Peninsula, Andalusia, what we call now Spain, polemicized in one way or another against the Karaites. So we see how important they were for the rest of the Jewish community. Right. And um, did Karaites engage with rabbinic texts, such as those of Rashi, the the medieval commentator and the famous physician and rabbi Maimonides? Yes, certainly the Karaites were well aware of this uh, literature. Now, up until the 12th century, most use, Karaite use of rabbinic literature was for purposes of polemics. They pointed out both legal decisions in the Talmud with which they disagreed and thought were ridiculous. And they also quoted often the Midrash, the homiletical sections of the uh, Talmud and rabbinic literature, and pointed out 
many times how, how ridiculous they thought these were. Uh, it's interesting because many of the same passages which the Karaites attacked in rabbinic literature, Christians also attacked. In Western Europe, we have in the Disputation of Paris in 1240 and other works which criticized the rabbis for, or Jews in general, for saying ridiculous things. Many of the same passages in the Midrash were quoted in Christian sources and in Karaite sources. We don't know if there's really a relationship, but it's an interesting parallel. Uh, so the Karaites would use that literature for attack, and it showed their great erudition in Karaite, in, in rabbinic literature. And oftentimes they preserved versions of the rabbinic texts which have subsequently been lost to the rabbinic world. So it's very important to study Karaite texts in order to reconstruct sometimes rabbinic literature. So that was on one hand of it. But in the 12th century, there is a Byzantine Karaite named Nisi ben Noach, who actually said it's a commandment, it's an obligation to study rabbinic texts. And he apparently also said that most of the rabbinic texts are the works of our forefathers. In other words, he appropriated rabbinic texts as being Karaite, and that sort of gave it, what we say in Hebrew, hechsher, a, a kosher stamp that was a right to read this literature for purposes of uh, learning and purposes of understanding the uh, Bible. Um, another reason why they read rabbinic literature is because it was written in much clearer Hebrew than the Karite Hebrew literature, which was translated, the translation literature of Byzantium. So you have an even um, one of the first, uh, first Karite exegetes, biblical commentator Aaron ben Joseph in uh, Byzantium, Crimea, in the late 13th century, mentioned specifically that it's difficult for him to read the works of his Karite predecessors. He couldn't read the Arabic. And the Hebrew versions of them were extremely, uh, extremely difficult to understand. So he was much influenced by, uh, by Jewish commentators, not so much Rashi. Rashi, the Karaites didn't like so much because of his, uh, his uh, tendency to quote the Midrash, these homiletical uh, passages, many of which they thought were inappropriate. But they very much liked Ibn Ezra, who was interested in the literal sense, the contextual meaning of the text. They often quoted him, and they often said that he was actually a closet Karite. <laughs> and the same thing for Maimonides. Maimonides turned into a Karite cultural hero. And even though both Maimonides and Ibn Ezra uh, polemicized against Karism and had some nasty things to say about Karism and Karaites, the Karaites claimed that it was only because of their fear of their contemporaries, that if you read their works carefully, you see they're actually sympathetic with charism, and they were the great among the great sages of Israel, and that lets them, uh, as I said, give the kosher uh, stamp of approval for their works. Karaites did not adopt the rabbinite calendar. They still many practices that they didn't have. Their dietary laws are different. Their ritual purity laws are different. But in outlook, they became very much part of the mainstream Jewish cultural um, 
cultural milieu, let me put it that way. Of course, the, by the time the Karaites had become so close to the Rabbinites, the Rabbinites were not very interested in the Karaites. They, weren't, they didn't see them as much of a threat. Uh, there weren't that many people in uh, terms of numbers. The Eastern European Jewish community, for instance, on the eve of uh, World War II, when there were, what, uh, 12, uh, 15 million Jews in Eastern Europe, um, only uh, tens of thousands were Karaites. So by then they'd become a very small group. And as I said, they by then had claimed they weren't part of the Jewish people, and that uh, saved most of them from being murdered by the Nazis. Right. Um, and so uh, is it true that the Karaites are biblical literalists as they are often portrayed by rabbinic Jews? No, they're not. No one can be a biblical literalist. Even <laughs> those people, even fundamentalist Christians and any of those who say we take the Bible literally, what it means, it's, it's impossible to take the Bible literally. Um First of all, there are, there are contradictions in the parts of the Bible. Second of all, the Bible does have, let's say, descriptions of God, which most Jews, and I assume most Christians, would not accept as, as physical, uh, as being literal, physical descriptions of God. And in terms of the observing the, the commandments, the Karaites claim that their interpretations are closer to the original intent and they don't uh, they don't uh, contradict them so for instance a major issue between uh, Karaites and Rabbinites is when the holiday of Pentecost Shavuot should be observed the book of Leviticus says that one should count between Passover and the festival of weeks Pentecost should count 50 days starting from the morrow of the Sabbath Moharata Shabbat well one could say, okay, the literal meaning is that one counts on the day, on a Sunday, begins counting on a Sunday. And certain temp- Second Temple Jewish groups counted the 50 days from Passover to Shavuot from Sunday to Sunday, and Shavuot was always on Sunday. But rabbinic Judaism says the morrow, the Sabbath, the Sabbath doesn't mean the uh, Saturday Sabbath, but it means the holy day. And one starts counting from the second day of Passover from the end of the first day of Passover. And even if you say it is the morrow of the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath, then the question is, which Sabbath are we counting? The, the Sabbath in the middle of Passover, after Passover? So the Karaites themselves had to interpret what Sabbath it is because it isn't said explicitly in the Bible. Or take other prohibitions or customs. The Torah says that a marriage between an aunt and a nephew, I'd say relations, sexual relations between an aunt and a nephew is forbidden. But since it doesn't say anything about it, an uncle and a niece, rabbinic Judaism says that's allowed. Karaites say that we can, one can learn from analogy. If an aunt is not allowed to have relations with a nephew, then certainly an uncle is not allowed to have relations with a niece. This is also a view of certain second temple groups, but not the rabbinites. Or you have a thing called Leverite marriage, which is when a man dies without children and there's a brother, according to the Bible, the brother is supposed to marry the wife, I'm sorry, the the widow, and have the children, at least the first child would be, in a sense, the deceased brothers. Uh, There is a way of 
releasing the brother-in-law from this obligation. And today that's the standard policy. But the Karaites, but in Karaites said, when it says in the in book of Deuteronomy, when brothers dwell together, it can't be actual brothers because the book of Leviticus forbids a brother from having relations with his brother's wife. And therefore they say brother there means a, a relative. It can't even be too close a relative because they have uh, very strict incest laws. So here's an example where, in a sense, the rabbis interpret it literally, two brothers, and the Karaites say, no, it's relatives. Or the, we have in Deuteronomy, also in Exodus, the, the commandment to bind something upon one's arms and, and put it between one's eyes, which the rabbis interpret to be tefillin phylacteries, or it says to put it on the doorposts of the house, which the rabbis interpret to be the mezuzah, the little box, the biblical passages uh, that people, rabbinic Jews, put on the doorposts of their house. Karaites say, no, this is meant to, when you bind it upon your heart, bind it on your arm, it means to remember it. It doesn't mean necessarily to take leather straps and biblical passages and physically bind them. So charism is not a literal interpretation of the Bible, but they do claim that their interpretations are closer to the original intent. They also have much more flexibility, or at least had theoretically flexibility of individual interpretation of the Bible. Uh, so there's no authority as such, even though they talk about the burden of inheritance, namely those practices which became uh, acceptable to all the Karaites. And that is, I don't know if it's obligating, obligatory, but that's how they observe the Torah. Right. And speaking of biblical inter- biblical injunctions, one of the very famous uh, culinary restrictions on uh, on on Jews is the the prohibition against mi- mixing milk and meat. Um, how do Karaites understand this prohibition? Okay, so the prohibition comes from a verse which is repeated twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy, which says you should not cook a goat in its mother's milk. You should not see the goat in its mother's milk. Now. We don't know the reason for this. Maimonides offers the possibility that it was an idolatrous purpose, uh, idolatrous practice to take a lamb and take the lamb's mother's milk and uh, cook them together. But whatever the purpose, the reason for it, the rabbis understood this to mean that one should not have milk and meat together. The one's not allowed to eat them together. One's not allowed to cook them together. One is not even allowed to have any benefit from meat and milk together. And this prohibition became so strong that it included also fowl, which is somewhat ironic because chickens and ducks and then uh, all kinds of birds don't have milk. They don't feed their, their, their young people, their young, their uh, offspring milk. And yet chicken was recognized as part of being meat in that sense and forbidden to eat with milk. Now, Anand ben David, who I mentioned before, uh, his view of it that had nothing to do with the actual goat, an actual mother or lamb, and a mother, uh, mother, but had to do with something with the fruits and the uh, first fruit offerings. But most Karaites take it to mean that one should not cook a goat or lamb in its mother's milk. And to make sure that that would not happen, 
they say you shouldn't have the same meal, uh, milk and meat from the same species. So if you had beef at a meal, you shouldn't eat uh, cow milk. But if you have a mutton in a meal, or certainly chicken, there's no problem eating with a with a um, with uh, milk from from a different species. Uh, so therefore, you could have a cheeseburger, which is a big no-no in rabbinic Judaism, by just having different species. Of course, nowadays, rabbinic Jews make cheeseburgers by using false meat and false milk. So they don't, so they don't have either one. But real meat and real milk would be forbidden. So Karaites do not have two different uh, sets of dishes. Karaites do not have uh, the general prohibition of milk and meat. And uh, there are other issues in the... Uh, the dietary laws, the way they slaughter the animals, um, the parts of the animals which are acceptable, uh, which separate basically means that Karaites should not be eating rabbinic uh, kosher food, or at least kosher meat, and rabbinic Jews should not be eating Karaite kosher food. I see. Um, uh, speaking of biblical interpretations, how do rabbinic Jews and Karaites differ in their approach to the issue of purity and impurity as described in the Bible. Okay, the Bible has lots of ways in which one can become impure. Uh, contact with the dead, uh, many bodily emissions, um, certain uh, non, non uh, cover, I'd say impure animals, contact with impure animals. Now, these prohibitions, at least according to Maimonides, were basically a way of making the temple a very holy place so that in daily life, if one became impure because of uh, contact with a, with a, I don't know, a dead insect, um, it wouldn't make much of a difference in, one, in one's, difference in one's life. If, however, one wanted to go to the temple, one would have to go to, through a purification process. And this made the temple a very special place and kept people from visiting the temple too often and making the temple as if as a substitute for observing the, the other commandments. Karaites, however, and therefore, according to rabbinic law, once there is no temple, these purity uh, restrictions have more or less uh, gone into abeyance. There are some, I'd say some remnants of them, especially in the family menstrual purity laws. And even here, it's unclear that these are issues of purity or issues of prohibition in terms of uh, marital relations during the period in, of, of menstruation and, and afterwards until there's purification. The Karaites, however, say that it's true that certain forms of purification, like using the, the ashes of the red heifer after coming in contact with the dead, those can't be done, but still want us to try to avoid such contact, unless, of course, one's preparing the body for, for burial and all the other methods of uh, becoming impure are still act, are still uh, uh, applicable today. Therefore, uh, bodily emissions, I mentioned, seminal emissions, bloody emissions, all would cause a certain amount of in, impurity during which period Karaites do not go to the synagogue. So a Karite woman uh, during menstruation would not, enter the synagogue and to carry a man uh, also becoming impure, let's say contact with a dead body or contact with a uh, 
corpse of a non-kosher animal would not go into the synagogue. In terms of the uh, purification process, Karaites do not use a ritual bath, the mikvah of rabbinic Judaism, so that for purification purposes, both for women after menstrual, uh, menstrual period and men for coming in other contacts, uh, they would use just uh, showers. They say that if you use a body of water into which to become purified, the water will take on the impurification. And therefore, once you take what's the equivalent of what today would call a shower, and then the water runs away and the impurification runs away. They also have, for instance, in menstrual purity laws, in rabbinic Judaism, usually the separation between the husband and wife is 12 days, followed by the woman's visit to the mikvah. Um, for Karaites, it's only the, what they consider the biblical seven days of separation. Right. And so it's clear that that, uh, the, that uh, rabbinic uh, Jews and Karaites uh, have a lot of uh, uh, differences in terms of their rituals and the uh, practices that they observe. Are there uh, distinct uh, uh, differences between rabbinic Jews and Karaites in terms of their principles of faith? Okay. So let me just go back to these differences of observance. You would think that that'd be enough for them not to get marry each other. <laughs> Over the years they did, there was intermarriage, maybe not great numbers, but there were intermarriage. And we have from the Middle Ages marriage contracts between a Karite and a Rabbinite in which they were sort of a prenuptial agreement as to what things they would observe, whose dietary laws, whose menstrual laws, etc. so that be, when, when is the marriage, they know what to do. In terms of beliefs, Karite's theology and rabbinite theology are very, very similar. The main difference is in terms of the acceptance of the oral Torah, the, uh, the rabbinic literature. Maimonides has 13 principles of Jewish law, uh, of which the Karaites could buy into and agree with 12 and a half of them. The only half they don't agree with is the question of whether or not there is a second Torah, an oral Torah, given to Moses on Sinai. The Karaites themselves generally have lists of 10 principles of Judaism, more or less very similar to the rabbinic lists. One big exception was the Karaites made the studying of Hebrew an obligatory uh, principle of Judaism, namely that uh, Judaism requires that one learns Hebrew, and that's for the purpose for being able to read the Bible in its original language. And if I mentioned there is a certain amount of freedom of interpretation, at least traditionally, if one wants to understand the Bible in order to understand how to act as a proper, not say proper Jew, then one should have to one has to know the language in which the Bible is written and not rely on translations. So, in terms of the principles, though, that's the only major differences. Right, right. Well, we're almost at the end of our time. Um, I do want to ask you one final question, uh, and I realize there's some. Uh, speculation involved in this question, but looking to the future, what do you see as the prospects for Karaism's survival? Okay. Some of the Karaites that I know asked me that question as well. And the my general feeling is that a group which has lasted under minority circumstances and under the the adversity for 1,200 years, one should not count out 
very easily. <laughs> now, the Karaites are aware of their problems, their demographic problems, and also their um, problems of the following Karaite procedures rather than the majority rabbinites. So they've taken a number, they've, they do, there's a lot of educational activity among them. They are not encouraging intermarriage as such, but if there is intermarriage, would like the non-Karite uh, member of the couple to adopt Karite practices. Um, there, in the last 20 years ago, 20 years or so, they have started taking non-Jewish converts, and it would appear that many of these non-Jewish converts to Karite Judaism are former evangelical Christians who are used to taking the Bible literally, but have come to the conclusion that the New Testament is not part of the divine uh, revelation. It's not so easy for them to accept rabbinic Judaism because they have no knowledge of the Talmud, but they know the Bible very well. Many of them live in areas where there are no active Jewish communities. So they have found charism, and there are a number of Karite leaders today are former non-Jews. Some of them are former rabbinite Jews who have adopted charism. Uh, so even though it doesn't look so great in terms of the numbers and the loyalty that the American community um, the American Karite community is very, very much influenced by rabbinic Judaism and try to be part of the normal or normative or majority Jewish community in America. Uh, but still, it's, it's, a, it's a going operation. They have leaders. The, the, I have a student who was the, for a time, he's now, uh, I don't want to say retired, but taking a break. He was the Karite chief rabbi or chacham in Israel. Uh, he was the first one, first one born in Israel rather than in Egypt. And they are taking very seriously the idea of spreading uh, or maintaining charism. They would like charism to, uh, to continue. Who can, who can uh, predict the future? Uh, I certainly can't. But as I said, a group that's lasted so long and so tenaciously it's hard to count them out. I, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I hope that people learn more about charism as a result of this discussion. Absolutely. Thank, uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.